The following program is sponsored by Lindis Construction. This is the WCCO Home Improvement Show, brought to you by Lindis Construction. One call, one contractor. Lindis Construction provides Minnesota and Wisconsin with the best products and workmanship. They provide leaf guard gutters, asphalt roofing, metal roofing, seasoned guard replacement windows, exterior siding, remodeling, new construction, and more. If you've got questions, they've got answers this hour. Here's Denny Long and Andy Lindis. And good morning. Andy's taking the day off today, but our friend Barry and your friend Barry Strands is back in studio helping you out with any kind of home improvement questions you may ask. And as you know, if you're a regular listener to the show and you hear Barry, he can do that. He can do that quite well. Barry, good to see you. Good to see you too, Denny. I was going to say that tomorrow being Mother's Day, you probably at your house, it's going to be a pretty busy day. Well, it's a little strange. My mother's uh, going to get blessed by my wife this morning. So as soon as I get back and drop the vehicle off, she's going to go out and work on stuff. And I'm going to work on stairs at my house. Oh, so So there's always something. It's always something. So we'll see how tomorrow unfolds. I've also got a son turning 21 today. So Uh happy birthday to Jordan. So it's good. Good God. You got a lot going on. Lots going on. Uh, For those that maybe are new to the show, Barry, and uh, I know you've been friends with the Kevin, the Lindis family for a long time. Uh, but what what do you do when you're not here? Well, when I'm not here, it kind of depends on what the season is, but I'm a site supervisor for a company called Kyle Hunt and Partners out in the western suburban area around Lake Minnetonka. And I get to have fun managing job sites, keeping schedules going, doing quality control, all of that kind of stuff on various types of jobs. But primarily for my role, I'm involved in the remodel project sides and get to work on a whole bunch of crazy, wonderful, strange, goofy things. It's like I've been in the business since I was, you know, like what, 15 years old, since 1972. But now I'm finding myself going, you think you'd learn enough to know everything? <laughs> and it's like, no, no, no. Never. Every day, something new, something challenging. That's true. And on these bigger houses, sometimes there's stuff that, boy, no one anticipated. So the architect draws it one way, and then you're like, eh, it's not going to work. And now we have to figure out what will work and make everybody happy at the same this time. This cause a few sleepless nights. I well, it, it has in the past. I'm trying to walk in a little bit more peace going, you know what, at the end of the day, this is not like a third world debt or, yeah, you know, someone always starts starving to death on these houses. So, yeah. you know, I'm just trying to relax a little bit. No, you know what, this is this will pass. But as if that's not enough, you're a teacher as well. I do. I work for a wonderful company and Professional Education Resources is the company and mm. I get to teach construction classes to contractors, realtors, appraisers. We get to talk about all kinds of things for licensed builders primarily who need to get their credit hours every couple of years to maintain their license. And I talk to them about codes and I talk to them about designs, changes in the industry. We cover all kinds of things in those classes and that's a blast because guys who are looking for good information really find themselves liking somebody who's in the business, yeah, not sure. just someone who knows about the business. And because I'm doing it every day and seeing stuff every day, it's fun to be able to maintain that kind of connection with them. So it's good. Well, you can uh, connect with Barry this morning if you like. Uh, I want to talk, Barry, if it's okay, about decks, decking, codes. Because you know a lot about codes. You have to. Well, yeah, I have to. I mean, I got involved. When I was a kid, my grandfather used to bring uh, the inspector in for our framing inspections, and he would just sweat bullets on those things because he never understood that the building code was something you could learn and know the requirements. And so he never knew if he was going to pass or fail. And obviously things have changed since those mid-70s, but now I find myself trying to urge builders and then homeowners too because oddly enough, Danny, many homeowners think that the building code applies to contractors. 
Not to them. Right. They don't think, they don't understand that the code applies to any house. Any project being done by anyone on the house must be done to Minnesota State Building Codes. So things like decks, it's one of the things where we get into some challenges because there's rules for what the deck load can support. And especially with plastic composite decking materials that are so popular today. Well, they are. You have to make sure that we don't have a, a, well, an excessive, we call it deflection, but we don't want in between the supports. We don't want the boards to sag so much that they become unsafe. And that's fairly straightforward because most manufacturers have done their due diligence and made sure they've taught people that if they're going to use our product, then the structure has to be spaced correctly. But it happens oftentimes that we're looking at handrails and guardrails, staircases, those kinds of things, and we're not exactly sure what those rules need to be. And i got to tell you, for many, many years, even though I'm a construction guy, I didn't know that there was a difference between a handrail and a guardrail. And Mm. building code says those are two separate things. And so you have to understand a little bit about what's intended there. So we've got rules that relate to those things. So if you're stepping out on a deck, we assume that that deck has a railing around it. But there's a building code that says whether we have to have one or not. So the code says if our deck surface is within 30 inches of the ground around it, I don't need to have any guardrail. A person is allowed to fall two and a half feet okay. onto ground down below. So that 30-inch rule says, hey, maybe I don't want to put on a handrail here, or excuse me, a guardrail. And if I don't, I'm fine. So I've got a porch in Minneapolis, and my front porch does not have a railing around it because I'm 29 and a half low. inches yeah. from the ground. And I like the look of that. It opens up the space, and because my grade is high enough or close enough, it's not required. Now, if I were to put a guardrail in there, then the balusters or the members, whether they be metal or whether they be wood, I can't allow a four-inch sphere to pass through those spaces. So we call it the four-inch rule for the baluster spacing, but technically if a four-inch sphere can pass through those railing members, then my code's in violation. Mm. So I always tell guys, make sure nothing more than three and seven-eighths. That way if you – they actually bring a little four-inch ball out to the they job do. site for testing. How about that? And if the ball can go through that handrail member or that guardrail member, excuse me, uh, then it's in violation of code and you have to put those closer together. So that's one of those rules for guardrails that's on those decks. Now, guardrails have height requirements as well. So I want to make sure little kids don't fall over them. So they have to be at least 36 inches off the deck surface. I can make them taller than that, but they can't be less than that whenever a guardrail is required. Interesting. Does that make sense? Now, no, now, it does. Now yeah. think about my Minneapolis porch. Yeah. What if I didn't need to have any guardrail because I was within my 30 inches of the right. grade? Then could I lower my rail to 30 inches? And the answer is yes, because it's not governed by code. So maybe I want something that matches the historic look of my, you know, 1878 home. And if I wanted that, and those railings typically were about 30, maybe 32 inches tall off the surface of the porch, that would be perfectly legal if I was within 30 inches of the grade. Does that make sense? No, it does. I'll be doing. You have to visualize this, and unfortunately, radio doesn't give us the ability to do pictures as well as we wish. But But, it makes sense. But that's so. That's an idea that we need to understand. So there's also a a railing rule, or I should say, a handrail rule. And whenever we have more than three risers, now I need something to grab onto. So my mom is as cool an 80-somethings person as is possible. I mean, she's just full of energy, full of life. You know, she'll do, she's doing a zip line coming up on a, <laughs> and a retreat in central Minnesota in a couple of weeks, and she's already agreed to do the zip line. She's currently the record holder of the oldest person ever to do the zip line. Good for her. She said, I'm going again this year. So it's really fun. But she's finding herself looking for that handrail 
to grab onto as she comes up the staircase at my house. So I've got more than three risers, and, and I don't have that project completely finished. So that there's a need there. And every time I turn around, she's like, when are you going to get a handrail up here? I'm like, I soon, Mom. I hope, <laughs> I hope soon. <laughs> so well, happy Mother's Day to your mom. Oh, yeah, to my mom That's and to fantastic. all the moms out yes. there. We're so glad for you. Say, if you have a, we're talking decks and railings, and you can certainly join in on the conversation. It's a good time with Barry in studio. He knows his stuff, as you know. Uh, call us or text us. And if you have any kind of a home improvement question, we'll, uh, we'll take them. The phone number, 651-989-9226. The text number is 81807. Barry, we're already getting some of those in. And I'll tell you what, should we need a break? Yeah, we do. They're waving at us. Waving. Let's do a break. We'll Anything come back. we want to talk about, we can ask. Any Absolutely. home improvement question whatsoever. And good morning. Welcome back to our Home Improvement Show presented to us every week by our friends at Linda's Construction. Filling in for Andy today is Barry Strands, our friend Barry, who uh, comes highly recommended by virtually everybody. (laughs) I was out in a restaurant yesterday morning and a guy walked up to me and he says, are you still teaching? I've lost track of you. I didn't recognize him. Had no idea. About no, that. yeah, it was pretty funny. Occasionally, yeah. I'll get that in the construction world. Your so. reputation precedes you. Well, you know, uh, you're, if you have eleven kids and you mention it in class, people are like they, they take note. They go, <laughs> "This guy's out of his mind." So, yeah, anyway, it's fun. <laughs> and he's a busy guy. He works a lot. <laughs> All right, Tom in White Bear Lake has been waiting. Tom, uh, help us out here. What's your question, please? Yeah, I was wondering uh, as far as landings. Yeah. Is there a certain code where you need so many steps before you need a landing? And uh, if you could answer that, that'd be great, and I'll hang up. Uh, the challenge, Tom, with the landing rule is it's specific to what door we're talking about and where we're located. So the code rule says that there's got to be a main door to the house, which needs to be at least three foot wide, and it's actually smaller than that relative to the jam stock. And then it's got to be six, eight, eight inches tall, and it has to be six foot, eight inches tall, and it has to be side hinged. Now, that's typically the front entry door of every house, and that door requires a landing at it so long as it's within seven and three-quarter inches of the top of the threshold. And most houses do that and understand that. However, any other door in the house has a different set of rules that apply to it. So we don't have to have the same threshold heights. And if we don't have a door that swings over a staircase and that staircase is within 30 inches of the grade below, then that staircase would not need a landing. So it ends up getting to be a little more complex regarding what the rules of code are in that application. So it's a good question to ask a building official or a contractor. And you can call the city and double check on stuff before you begin a project. So you know if it, this door is under um, the only door in the house requirement code or if it's any other door in the house required. So here's what's funny. I always thought that houses had to have two exits, and that was true in code for a while. So you'd have to have a second exit from the house, not including the windows. But code changed back to the one door only. So a really? house could be 10,000 square feet, and by code, it only needs to have one required exit point. But nobody ever does it, so they stopped yeah. worrying about it. But that's all the code demands. Interesting. So you, know, you end up getting to stuff like that, and it makes people a little bit nutty because everything is about, in this case, this is the rule. But when that case changes, now the rule is still a door. But it's under a different set of rules for how that door is measured or how that door's uh, exit path would be required. So any landing that is required has to be at least 36 inches in the direction of travel and as wide as the door being served. That's how code discusses that door's requirement. So in your line of work, whether it be in the construction end or the teaching end, does this change a lot to the code 
are those codes changed a lot varying with yeah, the Yeah, that's a great question, Danny. Technically, the people who write the code, the International Code Council, they come up with a new code book every three years. Now, Minnesota has chosen not to adopt every third year, or every three years because it just gets to be too much craziness. Mm-hmm. So we've been on an every other code book cycle. So we actually adopted the 2012 code in 2015. We skipped the adoption of the 2015 code. Now the 2018 code is under review. And the presumption is that we'll adopt the 2018 code book in 2020. So when, when those codes change, I always try to tell people that the body of code, the bulk of the body of the code document, 85% stays the same. So what we get is additional regulation that covers about 15% of the code, and that's normal. Now, we had a code change when it came back last time around in the 2015 adoption that had some stuff relative to exterior wall construction. So if you're building a, a, a three-season porch or a deck, the bracing requirements for those walls got very, very complicated. Mm. And we actually had complete classes that just addressed the wall bracing section of code because it was massive in the code. It was 25 pages of new material wow. on how to brace a wall to be code compliant. Whew. Sometimes it's easier just to hire an engineer and say, hey, build it, design it for yeah. me, and I'll get it approved by the city Absolutely, that way. Yeah. Let's go to the phones. Alice is calling from beautiful Lindstrom. Hi, Alice. Hi. It's sunny out here. Yeah, you know, I see it downtown here now, too, so the heck with the clouds. <laughs> You're right about that. My question is, we have a um, good-sized deck, and we also have a little, um, well, we call it a stoop and down steps. And we do stain it when um, appropriately that we should. But when you come out the door and down the steps, we've sprinkled the brand Ice Bite. Sure. And uh, that part of the deck is worn, of course, from the Ice Bite. And I'm wondering if when we stain it now, should we put um, a second coat in that area or just stain the whole works? Um well, that's the, what this, I want to know. Sure, that's a good question. The question is, any deck surface that's deteriorated a little bit like that, I would take and rough it up with sandpaper first. Any wooden surface, I would rough it up. And then I would stain it. And I always like two-coat application on the heaviest trafficked ways on a deck stoop like that. So my recommendation would be to double up the coats. And mm-hmm. follow the manufacturer's instructions because typically some of them have to be done within 24 hours and some have to dry 24 hours depending on what product you're putting on. Yeah, good point. Thanks, Alice. Enjoy the sunshine. I was looking at, uh, by the way, if you want to send uh, send us a text uh, to Barry, that number is 81807. I think I've experienced this before, but I don't know. I wish I knew more about plumbing, Barry, and I hope you do. <laughs> well, I know that if you flush and it goes down, that's good. <laughs> it works. All right. Single handle faucet. Cold side comes out warm and then hot and then cools down after running for about 45 seconds. The hot side is fine. What could be the cause? Oh, boy. Um, It's really a challenge to know that. It depends on where that pipe is running inside the home. Sometimes it's in a chase or a cavity that's warming up. So we get the water that's right at the uh, pipe at location itself at the mouth of that faucet that's at the ambient room temperature. But then we may have a section of the pipe that's actually in an area where there's a warmer space. And so the water that's sitting in the pipe before we turn that on is now at 80 or 85 degrees. And we can feel that with our hand that the water's warming up. The question is, if you run it for two minutes, does the water cool down? 
And some sophisticated houses have got water systems where they're running water through filtration systems. And in the filtration process, the water warms up and it never runs super cold like it was groundwater temperature. Hmm. And we've actually had some houses where we've added filler lines to the cold side after they've come through that process of equipment to get that water back down to cold. So in some cases, it's been virtually impossible due to the amount of equipment yeah. that that water runs through to get it to come in at those cold temperatures. How about that? All right. Barry and listeners, we have another half hour of the show to go. So don't go away. If you're on the line, hang on. Or there's one line open if you want to fill it, 651-989-9226. We're getting more text messages at 81807. We'll pick up on both when we come back. And we're back here on 830 WCC. You're talking home improvement. <laughs> hey, we are back, we're, aren't we're, we? I was excited. We were talking about the Twins winning. Yes. I, I got Push the little red button there, buddy. Denny Long here with Barry Strands uh, filling in for Andy Lindis today, answering your home improvement questions, any kind you want to throw at him. Uh, this is the day you want to do that. Uh, we're, we were talking about decks, and I, I see, Barry, there's a lot of uh, text questions ref- with references to decking, so sure. we'll get to those. But folks have been waiting on the line as well. I want to keep that uh, happening. Who's been waiting? Uh, Dan is calling from Eden Prairie. Dan, uh, good morning. You're on with Barry. Yes, good morning, Barry. Thank you to say um, I'm second owner of a home built in 2002, and uh, in the master bathroom, both the faucets and especially the shower, turning on the hot water in the morning, and it's always like this. Uh, it takes 45 seconds to a minute for the hot water to start, and then once you know, shower number one has happened, Shower number two, if it's any more than maybe seven or eight minutes later, it takes as long for the hot water to to come through the uh, spigot. Any ideas on what we might do? Thank you. Uh, yeah, Dan, what you want is a recirculation pump on the water line there so that the hot water is being fed off the water heater to those locations. I don't have a good price point in what that's going to take with an existing plumbing system, but we always put recirc lines on our stuff so that we don't have that problem. It costs more up front, but it, it never gives you this situation. Remember, the water heater can be an, a whole number of feet. It's not just the physical distance. It's the piping distance from the water heater to that bathroom That's location. True. And that water's got to go all the way through the pipes before the hot water hits you. And then if you supplied from that same location with a different run to a different bathroom, not teed off the existing line, you end up having the same problem on another shower location. So research pumps the answer. How about that? All right. Thank you, Dan. Uh, let's see who is next. Uh, Mike is calling from Oakdale, I believe. Mike, you're on CCO with Barry. Hi, guys. How are you doing today? Good. Sorry, I just want to say that you're a great CE teacher. I've had a couple classes. <laughs> How about well, that? Well, thanks for calling up, man. Appreciate it. Hey, no problem. But here's my situation. 26 years ago, I built my house. Three years ago, the main bathroom kept break, tripping the breaker, and it wouldn't stop. So I changed out the GFI, wouldn't stop. Changed out the breaker, wouldn't stop. Proceeded to change out every light fan um, electrical outlet in the t- bedrooms that is, yeah. and the switches that were part of that circuit didn't stop. It kept breaking. Yep. But in the fall, it worked. And this has happened now for every three years. It just <laughs> went out two weeks ago, and it still is not going out. So do you have any ideas where to start to look for what the problem might be? Because this is a cycle now for three years. Yeah, no, this is a great. This is one of the kind of questions that contractors kind of scratch their heads and go, any idea? Uh, it's, you know, bugs in the system. It sounds to me like maybe a drywall nail has hit that line, and mm. there's a slight scenario where under the right conditions you're getting a, a fault trip. And then with those conditions change, maybe even with 
with temperature differentiation, then you're not getting it to happen. I cannot imagine anything else. Something in the line is the problem. That's the only conclusion I can come to. Wow. And, Mike, I don't know. Troubleshooting, that's going to be a pain in the behind. Wow. You know, that's the only I can tell you. That's interesting about the drywall nail. Well, anytime you've got interference in a system like that where you've got the voltage change, uh, that's what you're detecting with your GFI breaker. So when you've got something going on and you try all the things that aren't causing the fault, you can narrow it down and go, yeah. you know. And then why does it work later on? Well, if you've hit the plastic sheath of a Romex cable, that may be enough to create the interference in some cases. But if there's movement within the wall cavity relative to the stud that that thing is stapled to, it might be pulling enough with temperature change to move that nail head away. It's not in direct contact, so the current's still flowing through it. Huh. Does that make sense? Sort yeah, it of. It does, yeah. But Mike, I don't I don't have any I mean, all I have is compassion for what <laughs> that process is going to be to resolve. That. And by the way, Mike, no charge. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh Mike, if you if you if and when let's say when you solve that yes, problem. Yes, Mike, I want to hear all about we it. We want to hear about that. So th- thanks. Sorry. Mike. Good luck. Let the hunt begin again. <laughs> uh let's see, who's next? John is calling from Shoreview, I believe. John, you're on CCO. Good morning. Yeah, good morning, guys. Wonderful show. Always enjoy uh listening to you every week. Thank you. Uh, going from the uh, deck and the landing to the uh, basement, uh, have a, a friend of ours has got a, a mold mildew uh, problem on the walls in the lower level, sheetrock walls, block um, uh, block behind it. It's a lookout, so it's only a knee wall. Uh, but the mold is growing up, the mildew is growing up the outside of the, or, you know, in the, in the basement of the sure. wall, you mm-hmm. see it visually. And just wondering as far as eradicating that, uh, I've been I've been told if, if they pull off all the sheetrock and get down to the substrate, i.e. the block wall and the flooring, uh, remove every covering and everything, if it's treated chemically, you can eradicate the problem? Is that typically the case? Yeah, that's the, that's the goal. Uh, the issue with mold is that there's a thing called hyphae. Like they're like roots to a mold that can go 30 feet to find a water source. You have to cut the water source off. If you can't do that, there's plenty of food available in the wall framing uh, system to create the... A continuation of mold growth. But you're absolutely right. I'd strip the whole thing down. I'd bleach treat the wall and then probably do a spray encapsulation paint. And then I would come back with steel studs on a wood treated plate and then re-rock. And if you go to paperless drywall, you haven't got the same food source. And that can be, that can be resolved. All it's right. just a lot of work and it's a fair amount of expense, but it can, it's certainly fixable. All right. Very good. Good luck with that, though, John. Uh, Bob is calling from Hopkins with a question. Bob, you're on CCO. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. I have a stucco house about 20 years old with a cedar deck, and I'd like to replace the deck boards, but the boards are actually uh, embedded in the stucco. And I'm wondering, is, is it possible to get those out without damaging the stucco? Bob, my bet is that it looks that way, but that what you'd find is once you get the boards off near it, that that one that's, that looks embedded can be cut, uh, pulled loose from, you actually have to get a, uh, like a flat bar underneath, get a place to bite against it and pull it free. And then you'll see a, basically a slot where that deck board comes underneath the face of the stucco. But those should not be difficult to get out. They're designed to look like that bottom seam ties right into the decking. Most cases, that's a caulk that's been painted to match on the finished surface. So I think you'll be able to do it without difficulty. But it's uh, when I say difficulty, I mean, if you know what you're doing, it's not that hard. But you have to get those boards off adjacent to the one embedded in the stucco. And then that last one can be pulled straight forward. I take a sawzall, cut the nails or screw heads right off across the top of the deck board. So there's nothing mechanically holding that deck board on. Then it can be pulled forward and out. Does that make sense? All right. Very good. Good luck, Bob. 
with that one. Interesting. Uh, let's see who's next. Al is calling from St. Paul with a question. Al, uh, what is your question? Thank you. Yeah, I, um, I'm just wondering. I got these wrought iron railings, I guess is what you call them, out front of the house and out back. The, the same exact railing. And I've been painting them white every year for the 26 years that I've been here. Every single year I got to paint them. I use Rust-Oleum, yeah. you know, rough them up. I don't know, try to get the rust off as much as I can first. But what is there a way around painting these things every year if I want them to look really good? I've got a pretty nice house, so I like to keep them up. Yeah, that's a good question. I Besides painting, I know that there are electric, electronically adhered coatings onto those surfaces, but I've only heard about them being done, never seen them being done, and I wouldn't even know who to recommend to you. But that would be something, it's like electroplated surface on the metal that will restore a finish and... Um, I just don't know who to who to refer you to, but I would look into that. Okay. Good luck, Al. By the way, uh, phone number is 651-989-9226. Text 81807. Let's grab a couple of text messages. Uh, here's one. I have a single-car garage built in the 70s. The front portion of the slab has settled, twisting the front of the building slightly. Is there a cost-effective solution for repair? Was that was that be a what do you call it a foam or a mud jacking or yeah I mean these aprons around the garage are always challenging because they don't get footings the way we get the garage floor footed so the question of course is what's grabbing onto what but mud jacking would be one way to address it but then Danny we also have to take that seam between the apron and the garage floor and we have to fill that with backer oh, yeah. rod and then we have to seal that with an elastomeric sealant like Vulcum or something like that a polyurethane based material to keep water from getting back in there. Because of the water, it's the water that's doing that lifting and movement. And it's also washing away the sub base. And sometimes, I mean, my mom's apron was down about three inches. And the smart solution in that case was to break it out of there break and re-pour. Yeah. You know, now you can get good gravel down there and get a better base established. And that was a house built in the 1950s. So sure. it makes sense after 60 years that it needs to be addressed. Start from square one. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, text is 81807, by the way. Uh, text says this, we're replacing deck railing. Is cable railing any better or worse than other no-maintenance railings? Well, it's certainly more expensive than Is other no-maintenance railings, yes. I mean, uh, it's it's a fairly pricey product to have it installed. Um, the challenge is to recognize that the codes still are in place for the four-inch sphere not passing through. And the problem, of course, is those have to be put in real taut so that they don't have any sag or deflection in them. It opens up views. It's wonderful. It meets codes. But you can have some issues with building officials relative to the amount of tension in that rail, which means that the corner posts have to withstand a whole ton of pressure against them, that resistance of, I don't mean 2,000 pounds ton, but I mean a huge amount of pressure at the corner posts. So those have to be installed in a way that they can resist that movement so that you can still get the tension on the cable rail. We're talking earlier in a few text reference uh, decks question deck questions. Is it pr- um, practical? Hold on a second. We're getting so many now. It's jumping off the screen. Bear with me. Is it practical to replace the guardrails with something other than wood if the entire deck is cedar? The paint peels and violates uh, and likely violates code. Uh, also, I have a horseshoe-looking deck. I want to fill in the horseshoe. Can I do that with just hangers on the existing 2x10s? Is that up to code, if you follow that? 
Yeah, the, the question of the horseshoe first, let's take that one. It will depend on what the structure is that we're tying to and how that's been supported. If that's been supported correctly, that's, yes, you can hang her to side to side and fill that horseshoe in and put your deck boards down. No question okay. about that. What was the first part of that? Uh, the first one up is, in it, that is it, pra- <laughs> it practically replace the guardrails with something other than wood if the entire deck is cedar? Well, I, I think you can take that guardrail down and then use a metal baluster and then use a wood cap on the metal baluster, you tie that whole look back together. So now you've got a wood top matching the cedar of the yeah. deck surface, yeah. but on then all your balusters are metal and they don't have the same problem with maintenance. It's lovely yeah. look. You don't have to stain those ballasters. No, it's, I know. It's we good. do have to take a break, Barry. Hang on. We'll uh, be back with more of your questions by phone and by text on the Linda's Hour. Linda's Construction. You want to get in touch with those good folks. 1-800-LEAFGUARD. We'll take a break. 51 degrees here on CCO. We're talking home improvement, deck specifically, among uh, among other things. Uh, and we do have uh, texts and callers, too. Let's see, Barry. I don't want to run too far adrift here. Um, we did that. Uh, do, do, do. Oh, the, somebody <laughs> from Sleepy Eye loves the show. Thank you very oh, much for taking If that's that. Jeff in Sleepy Eye, I'm looking forward to seeing you it tonight. It doesn't say sir. a name. That's okay. Uh, I know who Sleepy Eye is. <laughs> Any codes for radon these days? Well, there is for new construction. Uh, Radon's got rules uh, for installations in brand new houses, but there are no current rules for radon mitigation systems in existing homes. Now, there's a Radon Reduction Act that was introduced at the state legislature that got pushed back to implementation to next year. And as we start looking at that, we'll see some new regulations regarding the renovation side of putting radon mitigation systems in place. So certification for the personnel who does the work, um, personnel who tests the work, and then companies who do the work will all have to come to a licensure process. And that basically will mirror the requirements for how we install a fan and where the fan's located. So currently in new construction, the fan has to be outside the breathing zone. So it can be on the outside of the house or up inside an attic space, the two most common places. It also has to be available to have power so that, well, right now, radon is only required to be atmospherically vented. There's no fan required. Really? Right, currently in new construction. We also, but we must put in a place for a fan to be located. So it's called passive ventilation okay. for a sub-slab depressurization, which moves the radon gas from beneath the basement slab. Huh, interesting. That's just, the, I mean, there's pages if you want, but... Well, <laughs> I'm looking at your face. No, wow. Let's go on. Wow. Read the screen, Danny. <laughs> Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Now is my summer chance to fix, Texture says, an underground gutter. Is there any way to keep it from freezing and bursting in the winter? It drops straight down eight feet and then drains sloping out to daylight 40 feet away. What are they talking about? Well, when we have gutters dropping down to perimeter drains, we want to move them away, they'll freeze up. Well, the answer is to use a heat cable. Basically, it's an electrical wire designed for that purpose. Electrician would come out, we'll run that line, they'll hook it up to a new breaker on a panel someplace, and then you'll turn it on for the winter months, and it keeps the drain flowing during the cold winter months. We do it all the time. It's normal. It's not cheap, but it's a wonderful solution. All right, tell you what, let's go back to the phones. John, I believe, is calling from uh, Minnetonka. John, thanks for waiting. What's your question, please? Yeah, I have a quick uh, plumbing question. My family recently purchased a small cabin on a lake, and in that cabin there is a a faucet and sink in the kitchen, also in the bathroom, and a shower in the bathroom, and they're all located within 10 feet of the hot water heater. And both sinks, uh, hot water comes out of the sink in the shower. The warmest the water comes out in the shower is tepid or lukewarm. Any ideas why that might be? 
Well, it's possible. Somebody called in during a break here and, oh, yeah. and mentioned that on some of the valves of some brands of faucets that they the regulator that separates the hot and cold water line actually bleeds hot and cold across the plane and so we don't get the pure hot and the pure cold. Kind of has yeah, so I think maybe the first solution if you got hot every place else it's not the water heater and there's nothing in the line that would be the problem unless it's running through a very cold outside wall. So then I would come back and say change out the faucet uh, mixing valve solve the problem that way. All right, yeah. A lot of plumbing questions today. Well, you know, when when plumbing doesn't work, we end up with trouble. We do. All right, let's see. Now, bear with me. I'm going to have to follow this a couple of paragraphs here. Good morning, it says. I have a house that was built in the early 70s, and I believe it's wrapped in tar paper under the cedar siding, or it's that blackboard they used to use. In the wintertime, I sometimes see where there is like some dark-colored moisture seeping out of the lap siding, it happens normally on the outside bathroom wall, and I noticed it on the outside of my heated garage toward the peak. What causes this, do you think, and is there anything to be concerned about? Yeah, great question. Inside the home, there's pressure in winter conditions, and there's more heat, and it's driving that heat through the wall surface. Water vapor inside that wall then moves through the exterior wall and wall materials. When it does that, it picks up some extractive, and you're probably looking at an exterior material that's fiberboard, and so an extractive of basically water mixing with some of the chemical nature of that board is pushed out through the wall and runs through the joints in the lap siding. And it has kind of the color of a root beer float. You'll see it on any of our lap sidings, and a lot of our houses in the 70s had no interior wall vapor retarders. So the water vapor from a bathroom, highest concentration, or up near a ceiling, highest concentration of water vapor pressure, is moving that moisture through. And we see this uh, chemical, this mixture coming through those materials. Very, very typical. Nothing to worry about. Okay. Well, that's good. It's a normal phenomenon. Normal thing. All right. Somebody wants to uh, pressure wash a steel-sided house. Uh, is there a danger in water getting behind the siding and causing damage? Well, anytime we look at pressure washing, it's about angle of the presentation of the pressure washing head. We're always wanting to push down with a slight angle, never up from underneath. So we don't spray. Things over outside your reach, you get in trouble when you start to go from below and spray above your head. Now you're pushing water up underneath that steel siding in that joint location. Now steel is locked in and that joint is not watertight, but it's fairly resistant even to aggressive wind-driven rains. So I tell people that if you're careful and work from uh, level and then angled down below your the presentation of that force, you'll be fine. It's not going to be a problem there. And if incidental moisture does get through, because there's air gaps in the way that metal siding is installed, it will be able to dry to the exterior eventually. All right. So not a big deal. Not a big deal. Uh, I think this is going to be, yeah, we're, we have about a minute to go, so let's shoot this uh, text fast. Uh, we have a townhouse built in 92, what they named a brand of casement windows, and it's showing rot on the sill. Where do we go to get this repaired if it's possible? Um, it was actually a lumber company they're naming. Yeah, uh, I know who that is. Um, bottom line is that's not under warranty. You can't get the manufacturer to fix it. So you'd actually go back to maybe a finished carpenter and have that rotted piece looked at, replaced, and then stained to match or painted to match. But you'd have to have that done topically. There might be pieces available, though, that match the existing sizes, and that's something that's worth pressing into. 
Okay. And usually, normally, if you have a, a name brand like the good ones that the Lindas sells, yep. you can go back. Well, you go to Lindas. For sure. But you can, for years later, you can also check like with Marvin or right. some of the others. Yep, exactly. Yeah. All right. Good to see you, Barry. Terrific, Denny. It's always right. fun to be with you. And say hi to your mom. I will. <laughs> and you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Barry Strands. We'll uh, see Barry from time to time here filling in for Andy Lindas. We're glad to, to see Barry. Thanks for your help.